connecting with something that's beyond yourself, that's bigger than yourself, is a stronger why. And that why is what gives you the energy and motivation, naturally gives you energy and motivation to live in a particular way. If you look at religious communities for the last thousand, thousands and thousands of years, they have a community and they're very clear on their why. Their why is for something greater, for God or for the the universe. And that drives the motivation to live in a particular way. So if you're not connected to a religion, you also have to know what your why. One of my whys is to get this world into, help get this world into a better place. Do you ever struggle to cultivate peace in the present moment? Hello, my friends. This is Nishant and welcome to the Nishant Gurk Show. This is a podcast about helping you live a fulfilled life. And my job on this show is to invite the world-class experts to extract the practices, routines and habits to help you live a fulfilled and abundant life. Today's guest is Elisha Goldstein. Elisha is the founder of the Mindful Living Collective, the central online mindfulness space to find the teachings, practices and tribe to uplevel your mind, your life and business. He is also the co-founder of the Center for Mindful Living in Los Angeles and creator of the six-month online coaching program, A Course in Mindful Living. His books include Uncovering Happiness and The Now Effect, a mindfulness-based stress reduction workbook and MBSR every day. In this episode, you will learn to opening your heart through mindfulness, how to reduce anxiety and depression loops, how connecting to a greater purpose moves you through the hardships and much, much more. Every Friday, I share a newsletter which has the latest podcast updates. And I also include one or two new things I'm currently learning that can be any new book, any documentary, or just anything. You can find the newsletter link at my website, https colon slash slash nishangarg.me, N-I-S-H-A-N-T-G-A-R-G dot me. And now please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Elisha. Elisha, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be here. Really happy to be here. My pleasure. I thought if you could start with your children, how would your children describe what you do for a living? How would my children describe what I do for yeah. a living? <laughs> That's a great question. You know, it's really funny. I've never been asked that before. Let's say they, they would say, my daddy helps people open their hearts and because that, I know they would say that because that's what my wife and I both tell them that we both do. And, and I think that's, what, that's really how they would describe it. Open people's heart. How do you do that? I know it's a very broad question if we can limit yeah. this into the mindfulness space. Just not, just not physically opening their hearts. Uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, we help, I help people kind of tap into what they care most about and also recognize that feelings and emotions drive our perception, our brain's perceptions and decision-making. And therefore, it's really important to be able to connect with the energy of the emotion that's there, whether that's sadness or anxiety, which a lot of people are feeling right now, or whether that's joy and gratitude or whatever it is. And and be able to kind of tap into how it's feeling physically, how the emotion, the energy, and emotion is emotion, energy and motion. So how that energy is manifesting physically, connecting with that. And if it's an uncomfortable feeling that's there, then turning towards yourself and just recognizing that like, hey, this is a tough moment. And this for a lot of people right now around the world, this is a tough moment in time. And in life, there are tough moments. That's part of being human. If you look historically, it's part of our humanity that people have gone through recurring tough humanity in different places of the world, different times, have gone through difficult times and moments. And personally, for people, they've gone through different times of difficulty. And so we turn towards ourselves and say, hey, this is a tough moment in life. There's tough moments. So the question is, what do I need right now? How can I care about myself? That's contacting your heart. That's helping you open your heart, is turning towards yourself and saying, how can I care about myself right now? That's personally... Another way of opening your heart is is on, on a positive way, which is being able to remember, recall beautiful times in your life or even things that you're looking forward to 
that are meaningful moments in your life and being able to recall them or visualize them in your mind like a movie and really get in touch with all the all your senses while you're doing that. And what you'll notice is that a smile typically will come to someone's face or your heart will begin. You'll feel like you'll, you'll actually feel like sensations in that in your heart area. It's really interesting. And so that's another way of opening your heart. So you can opening your you can open your heart towards personal or relational suffering or pain. And you can also open your heart towards the joy and gratitude, you know, of life too. So different different ways of doing it. And both support a sense of personal control, which a lot of us need right now, and resiliency during difficult times and also just kind of being happier. Yeah. And I would love to ask you, Elisha, that what do you do in your life to cultivate joy and gratitude? Well, that, that's one of the things that I do is I make it a practice to recall, let's say, a moment in time. And it could be, you know, this is a very practical thing just for anyone to do. And people don't typically realize that they can practice this and the, the, real, the, the positive impact it can have on, on you. And so, and so I just kind of, as, as a recommendation for anyone, like right now, even after they listen to this or even pausing this right now and doing it for yourself, is, is just to kind of, is just to pause and recall a moment in your life that you're really happy for having happened or you felt like was a meaningful moment in your life. And this can be something as big as a, as the birth of a child or, or the, or the, the moment you might have asked for your partner's hand in marriage or something like that. Or it could be something small, like having, having a, for me, like as an example, like the, the, you know, a, a number of months ago, I shared a, a uh, cup of coffee with my dad across, you know, a table at a you know outdoor area, and I just that that's a unique period. We don't do that very often, and that was to me was a really meaningful moment. So I can even look back to that, and and that moistens my heart, and I can look back to the bigger moments of life, and that also does that. And so I can feel that that's kind of a heart opening place to do that, and so that's that's one way that I. I recommend everyone just kind of play with that. Another thing to do is just every night when you go to bed, a lot of people say like keep a gratitude journal or mm-hmm. um, you've heard that recommendation many times. Yeah. And, but, but there's, a, there's a better thing to do than that. If you're going to do something like that, like recall when you're going to bed, the things that like have happened that were good that day or things in your life that you feel really appreciative of, the better thing to do is to activate more of the senses of your brain, which makes it more embodied and deeper. And just a way of doing that is allowing whatever it is, just like that earlier exercise, if you're happy for your health, let's say, think about what, what it means to be healthy for you. Like, how are you healthy? How does that manifest? Is, are you, is your body feeling like it's working you know, well for the most part? Does your heart feel like it's pumping well? Do you, you know, is your body at a good temperature? Meaning like you don't have a fever. Is your nose clear? It's not stuffed up. Like visualize this stuff and actually recount what it means to be healthy. And then that will actually deepen the impact of the gratitude that you'll have and will 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 serve as a, a greater source of resiliency and happiness moving forward. And if I connect to this point correctly, that you have natural antidepressants logic concept in your book uncovering happiness is that correct yeah yeah that's right can we can you please talk more on that natural antidepressants sure so the the in the united states the pharmaceutical industry is the largest and most powerful industry there is and and pharmaceuticals and, and medicine can be can be helpful for for some people and necessary to even at least from a mental health perspective to even do the work to to feel stronger you know in their lives however it, it's typically over prescribed and they're given like medicines given out you know really really easily and quickly nowadays and and all over the world actually as well and so there are some things we can do that can ignite these natural antidepressants and so i'll just give an example of them and and so one of them is let's say as an example mindfulness so mindfulness as many listeners may know it just means awareness and so we're just kind of bringing more awareness so we're kind of disconnecting from the autopilot of what i call the depression loop or the anxious loop or the stress loop 
And that's a conditioned reaction between thoughts, emotions, sensations, and the actions we take that all kind of congeal together. So when the brain sees like anything that's connected with that really that experience of suffering, which is like, let's say anxiety or depression, like let's say that a a feeling of tiredness comes over the body and that's associated with depression, that's going to kind of spike up this little alarm in your brain that's going to say, oh my God, this this might be happening. What do we do? And, and all of a sudden this this loop comes up that brings up all the thoughts associated with depression and all the emotions associated with and all of a sudden it just kind of arises it's triggered it's cued and all of a sudden you find yourself falling into this place or an anxious place or something like that that's exactly how trauma works too so what we want to do is with mindfulness it's a moment of just recognizing that like oh here this is happening this awareness it's this awareness and we can build it like a muscle and so and so practice and repetition same thing like with any habit it's the same thing our brain has something called procedural memory. It's a way of memorizing procedures in the same way that you memorize facts, except it's in a different part of the brain. Your brain memorizes procedures like driving a car and putting a spoon to your mouth and playing piano or guitar or how you talk to people, you know, same thing. The brain memorizes certain procedures. So with mindfulness, what we're doing is practicing a certain procedure of awareness. And, and so that's noticing when we're caught in certain emotional reactions. That's the first part. So that helps us step out of the autopilot of that conditioned reaction. And then the verb of it is intentionally paying attention with, with, with an engaged curiosity. And so what we're doing by that is we're not, our brain will immediately say this experience is bad. So it's going to want to move away from that experience, that anxious experience, that depressed experience. And the way it moves away from it, is it thinks about it more and thinks about how to plan to get away from the worst case scenario. So it thinks about worst case scenarios and, or it thinks about past experiences that have been really troubling, which tend to fuel these conditioned reactions. So with mindfulness, we kind of, we, we say with an engaged curiosity, because what that implies is that now we're seeing that loop with a non-judgmental awareness. We're saying like, okay, here it is again. I don't need to immediately react by moving away from it. Instead, what I want to do is figure out what I actually need right now. What's the best thing? So, so Viktor Frankl, who's a Holocaust survivor and a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. said, has a, is, is famous for this quote that said, between stimulus and response, there's a space. In that space lies our power to choose our response, and our response lies our growth and our freedom. So mindfulness is about widening that space, between, stepping into that space between stimulus and response, where I would call what's in between there is called a choice point. So now we're more aware of this choice point that's there, where before we were just caught in the river, whatever way the stream was going, we were just in it. We were in this conditioned reaction, which is how we live most of our life. And so now we're in this choice point and we're aware of it. So that choice point, we say to ourselves, okay, so now, now that I'm aware this is here, what's the most effective thing for me to do for myself to help me move out of this space into a healthier space? So I'll give you an example of a, of a, of a study that shows you how we can, with, with this practice of noticing things and being aware of them and stepping into that space, we can dial down the part of our brain that is, that is fueling these loops. So there's a study that came out a while ago at the University of Toronto. And in the study, they took two groups and they randomly assigned them. And or they took one group and they randomly assigned them to two groups. And one group went through an eight-week mindfulness curriculum. They learned how to train their mind to be present, be aware of emotions, be aware of sensations in their body, and not react to them, but just let them be and just allow them and, you know, just maybe relax their body a little bit. And the other group just went through some cognitive therapy training or something like that. And so they showed them three movie clips. One was a movie clip um, from a movie, an old movie called Terms of Endearment, which was a 45-second movie clip of, her, of a mother watching her daughter die of cancer. And the other one was a movie clip of uh, a movie called The Champ, a 45-second movie clip of this, which was a movie clip of a son watching his father die after a boxing match. So obviously very sad movie clips. In fact, if you, look, if you Google saddest movies of all time, like these movies, The Champ in Terms of Endearment come up. And so, and you can actually find some of these 45 second clips. If someone's feeling like really, like they really need to get some emotions out, you know, they can do that. 
And so, and so what, both groups showed the same perceived sadness. They're both very sad. But the difference was when they, when they gave them some, some psychological assessments, the group that was not in the mindfulness curriculum showed to have statistically higher rates of, of depressive symptoms, which was measured by this scale called the Beck Depression Inventory, and, and then the mindfulness group. And so you might say, well, what gives? Well, at the same time they were studying, they were doing brain scans on them. And the group that went through the, the mindfulness program showed activity in this area of the brain called the insula, which is in the back of the prefrontal cortex. So for those who aren't familiar with this, prefrontal cortex is right behind your forehead and it's involved with emotion regulation, impulse control. It's kind of like the command center of your brain in some ways. And so and so that's just right in the back. And that's been called the seat of awareness, or it's, it's the part of your body that lights up when you're mapping your, the part of your brain, sorry, that lights up when you're mapping your body. And what was interesting about that, that on its own is like interesting. Okay, that's interesting. They didn't express as made, they didn't rate on that high with depressive symptoms. And this is the part of the brain that was lighting up. So then when you looked at the other group, you saw something different you saw more activity in this area of the brain called the cortical midline, which if you draw like, if you draw like, a, like a line in the center, sort of in the, in the front center of, your, in the center of your brain in the little back, you'll, you'll see this area called the cortical midline. And um, that's called the default network. And so what that is, is that lights up when we're kind of just like our mind is kind of wandering and it's just kind of going wherever it's going or it's trying to problem solve in some ways, like on its own, like figure things out. And so what likely was happening with a group that wasn't in the mindfulness curriculum is they were starting to feel uncomfortable feelings. And so, and with the uncomfortable feelings, they were trying to figure out, hmm, how do I get away from this feeling? Or this is really uncomfortable. How do I fix this? And they might've been starting to worry. They might've been starting to worry. And, and that was fueling stress. So what was interesting about the second group is that when you looked at their brain scans, you saw that there was more activity in this area of the brain called the cortical midline. So that's, that's like the, a little bit of the front of your brain and back towards the center. And that's called the default network. So with that what that is, is that's the part of your brain that's just kind of wandering on its own, or, or it's the part that kind of goes into natural problem solving mode or trying to figure things out. And so everyone's feeling this uncomfortable emotion, and their brain's trying to figure out, like, how do I get away from this uncomfortable emotion <laughs> or fix it, you know, in some way, because this is really uncomfortable. I don't want to feel this way. And the, the number one way the brain does that is it starts to, again, it starts to kind of think about where this can go in the future or where this, you know, had been in the past. And so what they started just doing is festering in this kind of emotional discomfort is really what happened with them. While the mindfulness group, what they likely did that ignited that insula area is they were, remember, they were probably being aware of the sadness and they were just feeling the sadness that was there and they were just letting it be. And that was associated with less depressive symptoms than the than the other group. So with mindfulness, though, though, to circle this back, mindfulness, why it's a natural de- depressant is it can help us unhook our natural anti-anxiety. It can, it can help us unhook from the conditioned reaction of the anxious loop or the stress loop or the depression loop. It can help us take a step out and say, hey, I'm caught in this thing. I don't need to like um, let my brain go into this default mode. I can actually take control of my mind and decide what it is that I'm needing right now. So that's, that's how mindfulness on its own is a natural antidepressant. And there's a number of other natural antidepressants that then this goes into, but not mindfulness being the foundation because you have to have the awareness to say, oh, okay, what's, what direction do I wanna go in now? What do I need? What's the, what do I wanna focus on you know, in this moment? And, and so that's why that's the, a foundational natural antidepressant. Elijah, do you remember any instance from your life when you were in depression loop or in anxiety loop and then you came out of that because you were aware? If, if you could give us some example of that. I have so many examples of that. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, I just came out, with the, I came out with this course a little while ago called um, 21 Days to Relieving Anxiety Naturally. And the reason I even created that is because right now, so many um, people are suffering right now with anxiety and also these things called grief bombs, which are, you know, feeling really kind of depressed because there's, they're not, there's not any, there's an uncertainty out there. We don't know 
you know, we don't know when, you know, this is going to end at the time this is being recorded right now. There's, 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 there's uncertainty to when this pandemic is, is, is happening. And if you're listening to this years from the time this is recorded, we're, we're out of that. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and so, but there's an uncertainty right now, but depression and anxiety will always be with us as part of our common humanity. And so, and so for me, I'm someone that has a history of having struggled with anxiety you know, aside from just the d- depressive part, but I'm I, I touch on this because this is what people are really experiencing a whole lot of right now. To struggle deeply with sleep issues and and falling asleep and getting good sleep. I remember when I was 21 years old, and or no, I was 22 years old, and I woke up in the middle of the night thinking I was having a heart attack, and I drove myself to the hospital, barely being over, uh-huh. being able to look over the steering wheel. And I look back on that moment and I had like a roommate and he talked to me later. He's like, why didn't you wake me up and tell me to drive you? But when you're in that space, you're not thinking clearly. And so you're, you know, I'm driving myself to the hospital. I get to the hospital and and the woman comes to, I greet this woman there that's doing the triage. And I say, please, I'm having a heart attack right now. You have to have a doctor see me immediately. And she gives me like a stack of like 10 pages of forms. And I tell her like, I can't, I can't fill these out. I'm going to be dead before I finish filling these out. And she's like, just fill them out. She obviously knew something that I didn't know in that moment, which was just that I was having a panic attack. And so later on in life that, 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 and that was a traumatic moment for me. So I had those kind of like recurring here and there as, as that went on. And then I started to learn a little bit more about mindfulness and I learned a little bit more about self-compassion, which is another natural antidepressant. And so for me, an example of this is where I, where I had some more of these skills, you know, to kind of work with this is um, where I was, I was driving my kids um, over the freeway in Los Angeles. And all of a sudden, like that feeling came over me. My heart started being fast. I started sweating. I started feeling like a little bit of that out of body type of experience. And I was driving my kids on the freeway. So that was really scary because I'm like, oh my God, I'm like feeling out of control. But for me, I had practiced for a long time at this point, getting a little bit more control of my mind, I understood the science behind if I can pay attention to something with a steady, with a sense of steadiness, that's going to get my body back under control. In exactly the same way that I just described in that study that we just talked about. I knew through my experience that even though my mind was telling me things were really out of control, if I can soften my body and just pay attention to my breath, steady my mind just on this breath, I can turn the volume down on the thoughts that were causing this anxious loop to occur, this kind of panicky sensation that was there. Mm-hmm. And I trusted myself because of the science and my experience. I knew through my bouts of insomnia early on when I was that, that if I could soften my body and take a couple deep breaths and just see if I can note how my body was feeling, how my emotion, what emotion I was feeling and the quality of my attention that helped me kind of get out of that loop again and back into the present moment. And then if I could just trust to kind of start steadying my mind on my breath, that my body would do what it wants to do, which is naturally fall asleep. Even though my mind was telling me this wasn't going to work and this was no use. And it would, I oftentimes call this taming or training the mind because it really felt like what I would imagine like if you get a wild horse and you're trying to like tame the wild horse, it's trying to buck you off all the time. And a lot of people would just give up. But if you just trust the way the brain works, which is that if you steady your mind on something, or if you just kind of keep bringing it back to paying attention to something in the moment, like your breath as an example, or sensations in your body, and you just let it be, you're the, what's fueling that anxiety is your thinking and that part of your brain will start dialing down because there's an inverse relationship between paying attention to something and thinking really loudly at the same time. And everyone here knows that because whenever you've eaten something really yum, really yummy, really good, (laughs) and you're really into that thing, you're not worrying that much in that moment. But you know that when you're like at, at work or you're really like anxious about something, you're really thinking about something else and you're eating that lunch, you're not tasting that lunch. It's yes. not tasting. Right. So you can't do both at the same time. When one is up, the other tends to kind of go down. And so if you can trust that, you trust that knowing because you have that experience, you know that when you're anxious, if you can soften your body, take a couple deep breaths, 
and you start kind of just paying attention to your breathing and just noticing it as it comes in and out, no matter what your brain tells you, which is that this isn't going to work, don't do this, keep you know, tossing and turning or keep or find some other ways to get out of this panicky situation, no matter what it starts telling you, because it's freaking out, it's acting out of fear and it's acting out of fear that you know that if you keep coming back to this, your brain is going to is going to start igniting certain areas that are more anti-anxiety, antidepressant, and your body will come back into a state of balance. And, and so for me, my experience in meditation and mindfulness and my experience in understanding the neuroscience behind it really led me to just trust deeply. And then that led to a whole, to- a whole ton of experiences around around successes around that, about mastering completely overcoming insomnia. And that's why I ended up kind of creating a whole new sleep course based on, you know, how to, how to naturally come down, how to naturally heal your sleeping too. And, and so, and so that, that's, that to me is one of the best examples I have around, you know, how to work with anxiety from a personal experience. How many hours do you sleep now? I usually sleep about eight hours. Oh, what time? Seven, eight hours. You know, it really depends, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> you ask me at a time when I have two elderly cats and, <laughs> and a dog. And so what happens is they sometimes create sleep disturbance because either they'll like meow really loud in the morning and that'll wake me up and I'll have to go thing. And I also have three boys and I have a son who woke me up last night at 1.30 in the morning telling me he was having trouble sleep sleeping. So I had to go back into his room with him. So you know, the, when, it, when it comes to how long I sleep, you know, that's, I guess my, my situation might be some people who are listening to this right now, you might resonate with that, meaning there's like natural reactivity that happens in the night if you live in a house with other beings, and that could cause sleep disturbance. Um, but typically left, left on my own now, I have no problem falling right to sleep. And, and if I ever do, which is called a flare-up, which is natural. No one needs to worry about if you're sleeping well or, or if that's happening and then, and then all of a sudden one night you're having trouble falling asleep. That's okay. That's normal. That's called a flare-up. I know how to trust, trust in this practice that I just described that, that I can kind of come back to, I can get my body back into balance sooner. But otherwise, it's not as much of an issue anymore for me. Now, I will say this. In the beginning of this pandemic, and I know that people will be listening to this at different times in history right now, depending on when you're doing it. But right now, is this, there's, we're kind of in the middle of this, but in the beginning of it, and everyone can relate to this because there was a beginning to this pandemic at some point. Yes. My sleep was more disturbed. I, I would be waking up in the middle of the night more. And, and, and I noticed that there was just more on my mind. So yeah, Alicia, uh, you have a calm program for teenagers connecting adolescents to learning mindfulness. I'm curious to ask you that when your son was having trouble sleeping at 1.30 a.m., what did you tell him or how that conversation looked like? You know, it's interesting that you asked that because, because my kids, both, both, having, both having parents who are both mindfulness teachers and, and mindfulness educators and psychologists, oftentimes say how much they hate mindfulness because <laughs> they, you know, because it takes their parents away. Typically I'd go around, tr- you know, travel around different parts of the world and speak and train people. So it would take me away sometimes, or, you know, we'd be uh, initially when they were younger, we would be gone in the evenings at times because we were teaching classes that would last into the evening time. And we don't, we don't do that as much anymore, but so they would say that. However, it's frequent where they'll come to us, you know, at bedtime and they'll say, can you please come and do a body scan for me? So for, for those people who are not familiar with a body scan, it's just a way of kind of being aware of the sensations in your body from your toes to your head or vice versa. And just with this sense of um, just noticing the sensations and just being curious about them or just letting them be. So you're just, which is what you want when you're going to bed is you just want to start letting things be, not thinking about them so much, just kind of letting them be. Typically with kids, what we do is we add another layer of just kind of like this releasing element of different parts of their body. And so they'll frequently ask for that. So for me, what I did last night is I kind of walked him back in his room and I laid in his bed with him and, and I just started kind of bringing him through his body. And because I knew it was keeping him up, because I've, I've, I struggled with that in the past too, is was his mind. And remember what we just talked about, you can't think loudly 
and be present to the sensations in your body at the exact same time. When one is up, the other one starts to go down. And so like scales, you know, one is up, the other one starts to go down. And so I knew that if I can get him to just, and he has practice with this now because he's asked for it so many times, just to kind of just connect to the sensation in his body, just with a gentle tone that he would eventually start to kind of fall asleep. And so we, we do that. And so the, in the calm program, which we actually don't teach as much anymore, but with that program, except when we work with people individually with that program, one of the foundational practices there is the body scan. And we'll do that practice. We'll also do a practice where we connect the adolescents to a stone. We'll give them a a flat stone, a river stone, and we'll write the word breathe on it and we'll put it on their stomach and we'll have them just naturally breathe and feel the lifting of the stone and the falling of the stone and just attending to that. Because remember, as you're doing that, what are you doing? You're helping them learn how to turn the volume down on their thinking. And that's what we want to do (laughs) is feel more in control. Mm -hmm. You know, research shows that when you have a greater sense of personal control, then you have less experiences of anxiety and depression. But when you're feeling out of control, that ignites those experiences of anxiety and depression. So I would love to shift some gears here from anxiety and depression to purpose. So what does your meditation practice look like these days? So for me, you know, it's really about this since the COVID thing, you know, it's really different because we're, we're home a lot of the time together with our three kids. And so for me, it's, it's finding 10 or 20 or 30 minutes really at some point in the day. I mean, lucky, lucky for us, it's, you know, we, we actually have an office space called the Center for Mindful Living that we still get to go, that my wife and I trade off going to throughout the week. And so we can find a little space to do that. But sometimes it's actually not even the formal practice. And sometimes because that there is just no, it doesn't seem like there's time to kind of get that um, inner space for that with the, you know, with this kind of like more quarantine type of experience. And it's more of the informal aspect of it, of just being really present to my kids for a period of time and just being very intentional about that and really paying attention to them and paying attention to my body and how I'm feeling. Or maybe it's spending time with my cat who's elderly on my on my lap and just sensing the connection between me and my cat and being present to that and the sensation of the of of his fur and and feeling, you know, even the memories of of our experiences together and really being present with that or it's spending time in the evening time with my wife and just listening and paying attention to her, you know, in that moment. Those informal aspects of 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 mindfulness are are equally as important to me as my formal practice of meditation. So if that can't always be daily, the other stuff is. And, and so it's kind of an integration of both of those that are happening. So that's that. And, and in essence, that's what I call mindful living. Yes. This mindfulness and living in the present moment sound simple and easy, but it may not be that easy to live in the present moment. Why do you think people struggle with living in the present moment and just living their lives in the past and in the future? Well, you know, Nishant, that's a very good question. And the, and the reason to me is fairly clear. Our, our cult, at least the culture that I, the, the culture that I live in is, is not set up to remind people um, or inspire them to be present. It's more, it's more set up to inspire a, an addiction to stimulation and distraction and thinking about what we don't have and what we need, we need or want in the moment. And so, you know, if you're, if you were living on a monastery somewhere and everyone was waking up in the morning and practicing meditation, then, you know, or, or being present to what they were doing, you would naturally just kind of fall into place. All the world's wisdom traditions have shown that people who are like really into their communities their spiritual communities, they follow those practices. And, and so we don't have the cues and we don't have the cues and triggers around us to remind us we have kind of the cues and triggers of the opposite. And so, and we're, we're trained, you know, from a very young age to 
just soothe, to, to be taught that it's, it's necessarily to soothe our discomfort and to move away from discomfort. Pharmaceutical industry shows us that, the you know, marketing for various food companies kind of show us that, just kind of eat these and you'll, you'll feel so good, you'll remove the suffering you know, from this. And so we're, we're, we just don't have that. And so there's a reality behind our interdependence. We're literally far more connected to each other than we know. Every time you see someone pull out a cell phone, you can check yourself. You'll see that you'll naturally pull out your cell phone or be inclined to do that. Or there's been studies that have shown that when you drive by a, you know, different billboards of certain food companies, even fast food companies, it'll kind of spike your dopamine in your brain that will then show you, then, then kind of drive you. It's the motivation chemical to say, I'm going to go get that. I need that. I need that. And so I've been working really hard over the past five years to try and advance the message that we need to, if you really want to make this easier, mindfulness easier for you to implement in your life, or if you want to make exercise easier for you, if you want to play a guitar and make that easier for you, you, you need to surround yourself by the right people who remind you or inspire you to live in that way. So that's why I've created this thing called the Mindful Living Collective. The Mindful Living Collective funnels people together who all want to live in accordance with what I call mindful living, which is living in the way that I described before, a combination of, of, of meditation or mindfulness throughout the day, of living, you know, and living the change they want to see in themselves in the world. And so you have, you're in contact more frequently with those types of people or, or another, even a deeper experience called the inner core, which we're literally on calls with each other twice a week to, and we're, we're, we bring people into smaller groups with each other that support each other daily and their intentions and the obstacles they're experiencing and the celebrations that they're, of the things they're overcoming. And, and that the, the intention of that is to help people create relationships to strengthen a smaller tribe of people around them to naturally lift them up or make them to practice, make them make it easier for them to practice mindfulness in their mind because the brain it's more top of mind. Everyone knows this stuff. People know that it's best to exercise every day. People know that it's best to eat in a particular way and not eat other things. You know, people know it's bad to smoke. People know, you know, if they want to live longer, they know things that they should do, right? But it's hard to do. It's not just mindfulness. It's all this stuff. And our culture is just not set up to inspire that and make it easier. But there is a way to do that. And if you understand the science of interdependence, like how we're really interdependent with our environments and other people and how it cues our brain. And you understand that you have all this knowing and understanding inside, you know, people know what they need to do. It's just that it's not top of mind. When you see a McDonald's billboard and, and then you, then you finally see that and, and it reminds you like, Oh, I'm hungry. That sounds like a good solution to me, to my hunger. That, that looks tasty the way that's billboard is up. Some people, and then they go and get that. It just brings it top of mind. Marketers know know how to do that. We need to be smart about manipulating our environments in a particular way that, that, in, that bring things top of mind and create the motivation for us to live in the particular way we want to live. And so because our culture is not going to do that for us, we, we can go through a process of, of creating that environment for ourselves. Do you have any supportive community in your life? that you can always go to? I, I have built the supportive community for my life. Well, luckily, luckily for me, I have a, a wife who I met my very first day of graduate school who reminds me of this every single day. So I kind of have that built in. But I've also created over the years this community called the Mindful Living Collective and this, this smaller, even more intimate group called the Inner Core that we surround each other on a regular basis you know, and give, and give that kind of daily support. So in other words, I had to kind of create it for myself. Now, now outside of that, before I even built, before I even built the inner core, I started to have more frequent contact just in the profession that I'm in with people that are, have been living in this way for, for longer than I have. And so I made a point to make more frequent connections with them, more frequent contact with them, because having that in my sphere of influence 
helps bring the importance of this top of mind. Even so, even with that, I have to remind myself on a daily basis of why I'm doing the work I'm doing or I want to live in the way that I'm wanting to live. And my biggest motivator that I'm, I frequently get in contact with is the, is the motivation for me that goes beyond myself and helps me understand that as I live this way, I'm naturally inspiring my kids, even if it's just planting seeds right now. But as I put this work out, like you and I are doing right now, my hope is that this touches people and inspires them to live in a particular way or shift their life in a particular way that helps them get into a better place. And I know because of the science of interdependence, because we're really connected to each other and we're all cues and triggers for each other, that that I'm hoping that someone that someone who's listening right now is in contact with also gets inspired a little bit and we start seeing some ripple effects from there. Yes. Are you saying that having a greater purpose in life will help us navigating through the hard times? Connecting with that with your greater purpose with a greater purpose. Connecting with something that's beyond yourself, that's bigger than yourself, is a stronger why. And that why is what gives you the energy and motivation, naturally gives you energy and motivation to live in a particular way. If you look at religious communities for the last thousands, thousands and thousands of years, they have a community and they're very clear on their why. Their why is, is for some, something greater, for, for, for God or for the, the universe, you know, or, or something like that, right? Whatever it is. And that drives the motivation to live in a particular way. So if you're not connected to a religion, let's say, you also have to know what your why. So one of, the, one of my whys is to get this world into, help get this world into a better place so my kids have a better, they're, they're, not, they're, not, they're not left with a, a devolved world, world that they're inheriting or culture that they're inheriting, but something that's a little bit more evolved so they can be more supported and have more resources and feel more connected. And that that's available for them, you know, as they grow up in this, on this planet. Do you ever feel that you have a lot to do on your plate, but sometimes the feeling isn't there. You're not feeling to do things. And then how do you remind yourself to connect to your greater purpose? So I have a, <laughs> this might sound kind of silly, but, but there's two things that one is that sometimes that just happens and you have to you know, kind of practice a little three-step process I have called forgive, investigate, and invite. And if time goes by and you don't catch it in that moment that you're just kind of in a funk in some way, or, you know, you don't feel like living your best self, and that's just kind of natural. That's part of our common humanity. We're all going to have down moments. And at some point you wake up to that though. And having a community of people around you, by the way, um, is going to help you wake up sooner to that. And having a regular Mindfulness practice, in my experience, will help you wake up earlier to that. But the, but, but, but in that moment, that whenever it is that you do wake up, you practice this practice called forgive, investigate, and invite. You forgive yourself for the time gone by. That's the past. There's nothing you can do. You can't change the past. Lily Tomlin, an actress, I said said um, forgiveness means letting go of any hope for a better past. So 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 we forgive ourselves for the time gone by. We investigate what brought us off track so we can learn from it. We don't just kind of like let it go. We learn from it. And then we invite ourselves to begin again, whether that's like a week later, you know, or a couple of weeks later, or a month later, you can do that practice at any point. That's the first thing. So just to normalize that we're not going to always just be on track of being our best selves. And, you know, that's okay. The change journey has ups and downs. The question is, can we use the downs as learning moments at some point so that we can go stronger and eventually the ups, you know, we keep going up, even though there's down, the trend is going upward. But the other thing is I actually have a sheet that I, that I worked on and, and printed out. And I recommend doing this for anyone is just to do some reflection and ask yourself, like, what is it that, what is it that you're, the way that you're wanting to be in this world, whether that's your work or whether that's your personal life or the combination of both, what, what, how is that going to help something greater than yourself? What's your bigger purpose for in, in that way? And it could be, it doesn't have to be too 
it could be something very simple. You know, it could be for future generations or the kids, or it can be, you know, to, you know, leave a mark that inspires people. Just think of something, or it could be something connected with God or whatever it is and write it down and, and then write down what, what you're doing, you know, that's, that is in accordance with that. And even if you're not there, you can just say like who you'd like to be, who you see yourself as, you know, uh, as your best self. And then remind yourself of that every day. Every day, just keep that by your desk and just kind of read it over and see if you can take 60 seconds to just kind of feel into that and just help that. All that's doing is bringing it top of mind. There's a part of you that already knows that, but we need just neurologically, you know, if we want to keep our brain in mind, we have to do things to bring it top of mind. Otherwise, the flood of the news and the the river of life is just going to kind of take us in whatever way it is. And then so we're being yes. reactive and not proactive. And it feels good to be proactive because you feel more personal control in being proactive. Exactly. And I was reading the distinctions between passion and purpose. And I found this research where they say that people who have some purpose, they are more productive, they have higher resiliency, even though you may not have big passion for anything, but when you feel that you have a purpose, you just do it. You know, you don't have to be too passionate about anything, but if your doing is connected to your purpose, then you can go long ways. Because purpose pulls you. Pulls you don't you. have to pull, you don't have to push so much. It's not like you're pushing a rock uphill because it's so hard yes. to get my shoes on to exercise every day and, you know, or sit down on the cushion and do my meditation or whatever, eat right or whatever it is that we want to do to live well. Purpose pulls us, it makes it easier. So we want to be pulled, not have to push all the time. We want to be pulled and that helps pull us. Who comes to your mind who is, or one person or more than one person, who comes to your mind who is living in the present moment and successful, they have money, they're happy, they are fulfilled. <laughs> you know, I can, I can, aside from myself. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't, it's not all about the, the I think of someone like Thich Nhat Hanh, who and he's, he's, he's very comfortable because he's supported by uh, donations because his spiritual, spiritual leader is a different, different type of lifestyle. But someone in my kind of realm of, uh, of life who comes to mind of being kind of fulfilled in, in all of those aspects. I think of my friend, Rick Hansen. I think he, he kind of lives in that way. And I think of uh, a mentor in front of mine named Bob Stahl. I think he lives in that way, um, comfortable with where he's at in his work financially. And also, you know, at, at peace as Pete was with all that stuff. And, and as far as the financial point, you know, it's just about making sure you're, 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 your expectations and wants are met, meaning like you may not want as much. And, and, and if, if, if that's okay, if you're comfortable with what you have, then that's, then you're happy with that. But there's many programs out there that are, that are, which is, which is wonderful too, which is making, which is igniting people to strive to build bigger. And, and that's good because it's helping them feel more empowered that they can actually build a bigger business and be more successful, you know, in that way. And I think that's, that's also good. That's not necessarily a bad thing because that's like, that's, that's empowering people to show that they can do more maybe than their limiting beliefs tell them they can do. Wonderful. So we have limited time, Elisha. So before I ask you my last question, I would love to ask you that what are the books have inspired you the most? So there's a book called I think that it was years ago. I think it's called God in Search of Man. And it's by Abraham, jo uh, yeah, God in Search of Man by Abraham Joshua Heschel. And he, it was a uh, rabbi and a spiritual leader and a peace activist. And he marched with Martin Luther King. And he, out of that book, there's some really wonderful pieces of wisdom that say, that one, one in particular that I'm going to draw out that I think is great for everyone here, which is, he says, life is routine. And routine is resistance to wonder. So from an everyday perspective, that shows us how just psychologically we get caught in routines, routines of the way we wake up in the morning, the routines of the way we work, the routines of the way we relate to our family and our friends and our kids and routines that we relate to ourself. And that, that, the, the la and that leads to a lack of novelty. And novelty has been shown to be kind of a spice of life. In a lot of ways, it's actually good for neuroscience. It's good for our brains. And 
and and it's it's really healthy for us. So we so so we want in our from a brain perspective, that's the procedural memory. Our brain memorizes procedures, which can be really healthy for us. At the same time, um, if we're memorizing procedures that lead to anxiety and depression, if we're memorizing certain procedures that lead to just avoiding uncomfortable feelings and eating that whole bag of potato chips, or just saying like, no, you know what, I'm not someone who can actually <laughs> live well. That's good for this person on this magazine, but not for me you know, type of thing. If that's the kind of procedures that we're memorizing, then that's not healthy. We're caught in that routine and the wonder goes away. And the wonder, when the lights go out in our eyes and there's no more wonder that's there, that's a recipe for anxiety and depression and just unhappiness. Yes. Got it. And uh, my last question. I'll, I'll, say, I'll say a second book, by the way. Thich Nhat Hanh has a fantastic book called Taming the Tiger Within, which are these short passages that show you how, that, that, that inspire this sense of how to relate to our uncomfortable feelings that are here. And I love that. And, and my dad, actually, who inspired me to write, wrote a book called All That Matters. And, and that book is about just the meaning of relationships and the honoring of people who came before us and 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 it's also a really really beautiful beautiful book wonderful and we'll put all these book names in those show notes so alicia my last question is do you have any suggestion any closing thought for our listeners or where they can learn about your work yeah i mean you can go to elishagoldstein.com um e-l-i-s-h-a goldstein.com that's just kind of give an overview i typically have a blog there that people can just kind of get morsels out of um, the mind, the mindful, uh, mindful living collective.com is where that shared learning community is in there. There's just people are sharing like their best resources that are out there about living mindfully in relationship to let's say things like anxiety or parenting or aging, whether they're somewhat someone's in transition in their life, or they feel stuck emotionally in their life for some reason, or they just want to look for tools and guided meditations, that's all there. And that's just totally free. Within that space, there's also more structured courses that people can go deeper into. And you also find the inner core in there, which is like this, again, this complete success tribe that's kind of built in for people. To me, it, it catalyzes and helps people make more effective change, the more, more effective, more effectively change the things they want to change in their lives based on dipping in to the right people and the right learning. Great. Thank you, Elisha. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Nishant. Really wonderful. And I hope, I hope uh, we can create ripple effects together. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or you can visit https colon slash slash nishantgarg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me you can also share this episode with your loved ones to help them live a fulfilled life you are not alone in this journey we all struggle in life there is no shame in talking about it i go through my highs and lows i get depressed and these practices help me in living a resilient life you can also do this you got this don't judge yourself you are doing the best you can and thank you so much again